Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I'm Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. I'm feeling good. How are you guys feeling? Yeah, yeah pretty, pretty good. good. I don't know what it is, but something about watching a series of movies in which a despotic autocrat with bad skin is, is overthrown from power, it, it really resonated with me this time. I'm not sure why. It's probably just a coincidence, but uh, yeah. we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, we have watched, of course, the original Star Wars trilogy, consisting of Star Wars A New Hope, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, and Star Wars Return of the Jedi. But first, we're going to get into what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? I have a very short one this week. In fact, it might be the shortest what we've been watching thing I've ever done on this podcast. Because I've only, other than the three movies that we'll be talking about in the deep dive, I've only seen two. The first is Solo, a Star Wars story. It is, of course, a science fiction adventure movie. This one is directed by Ron Howard. It is about the young street rat Han Solo played by Alden Ehrenreich, along with Chewbacca, Junus Swatamo. They fall in with the smuggler Tobias Beckett, played by Woody Harrelson, and they set out to do this heist for the criminal syndicate of Crimson Dawn because Han is trying to get enough cash so that he can go and save his old flame Kira, played by Amelia Clark, from poverty in, in the slums of where they grew up under the, the rule of the Empire, basically. But things get pretty complicated when he finds out that Kira is already out and working for Crimson Dawn. This is competent and unremarkable. It was, of course, had a really rough production at the time. Phil Lord and Christopher Miller were originally hired to direct it. They were fired quite a ways through production and replaced with Ron Howard. Apparently, they were going very jokey and improvisational with it, like it was going to be a lot more of a heist comedy. And that rubbed Lucasfilm the wrong way. The Kasdans, Lawrence Kasdan and his son, who wrote the script, apparently didn't like that a lot of their dialogue was being adjusted and moved around to accommodate improvisation. And so... They're gone. Ron Harwood is brought in. Ron Harwood, who really has no visual style to speak of, no directorial style to speak of. He just makes movies. He just makes movies, and he makes good movies, you know. But he—he's not distinct. He, he doesn't have a person. Uh, he doesn't have a filming filmic personality to the work that he makes. You would be forgiven with all of these development problems for thinking that surely the end product would not be very good. But it is surprisingly focused. It's not as messy as that troubled production might lead you to believe. I was always the least interested by this from the very moment they announced it, though. When they announced that they were doing anthology movies and they were going to explore you know, different facets of the universe, I thought, cool, uh, that's really interesting. And then they were like, and we're going to do a young Han Solo movie. And I was like, oh... That's the most obvious, least interesting thing you could possibly have done with any of these. Yeah. It, it, just, it just seems sort of pointless. Yes, it does. Because in A New Hope, we get his going from a shitty smuggler who does shoot first to a hero, basically. And then over the original trilogy, he becomes a general and he becomes a leader. And you don't need another movie to show that 
this doesn't really go in unexpected directions. The, the, the sequel tease at the very end is interesting, though. That's probably the most interesting and creative part of the whole movie. It does leave a, like a huge amount of threads hanging that needs to be wrapped up at some point or another, whether that's in books or in, or in a, a film sequel or a TV continuation. Han is just not very Harrison Ford-like in this. They're, they're probably setting up an arc, I would assume, that was intended to take place over multiple movies, but he's just a generic wise-ass here. He's, he doesn't have any of the edge or the... The danger. The danger of what made Harrison Ford really effective in the role. He doesn't, he doesn't seem like a scoundrel. No. The, the Chewbacca stuff is really good fun. I like his dynamic with Han. I like the, the bits of comedy between them. I, I, I find it difficult, the implication that Chewbacca has been imprisoned in a cell in the middle of this Imperial camp and been fed human beings for who knows how long. That's a bit of a weird move to, to make with that character. I'm also not thrilled with the idea that Han Solo got his surname from a Ellis Island-style bureaucrat doing immigration paperwork. That, that's a great moment, though, because we hear the little jingle of the Imperial March. That was that was witty. That was funny. Yeah, I really but like it's that. not on the soundtrack, so you get a demerit point for that. Yeah, I like Lando in this. I don't really. I think Donald Glover is doing an SNL impression of Billy D. Williams, especially right. watching everything in chronology, going from Solo to Empire Strikes Back relatively quickly. He he's not doing anywhere near a naturalistic version of that character. It is it is heightened. That character is made really comedic in a way that he never was in the original trilogy. This movie bears scars of its origins and and its original intent under the direction of Lord and Miller. Like there's a kind of confused tone at points, and sometimes that that comedic tone really works. Though you got Phoebe Waller-Bridge as L337, this this sassy robot <laughs> who is easily the funnest part of the movie. And you got Beckett, who is a decent character. I really like Paul Bettany as Dryden Voss. Yeah, the, I do too. The villain of the of the piece. Beckett's gang is unremarkable though, and they all they all exit the film in, in pretty quick fashion. The heist is is basic stuff. It fizzles out in the end, but it hones in on the personal stuff yeah. to do with Han, which is probably the correct choice. The Kira stuff is... See, this is the thing, is that the Kira stuff is fine, but there's so much unresolved, and it, it, only, it will only work if this is ever eventually resolved in other me- media. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just opens up too much and doesn't finish, yeah. really. But the CGI is fantastic. There's really cool visuals. It's unnecessary, but it's fun. And I hate the amount of hanging threads it creates, especially since it underperformed. And it seems like we won't get a sequel to it, at least not a theatrical sequel. But anyway, it's available for streaming on Disney Plus if anyone is interested. Next, I watched Rogue One, a Star Wars story directed by Gareth Edwards. This is set directly before Episode 4, A New Hope. It's about the, the secret construction of the Death Star. This hostage scientist 
Galen Erso, played by Mads Mikkelsen, is being forced to design it, but he smuggles a message out to the Rebel Alliance. And the the Rebels gather a team, which includes Jin Erso, played by Felicity Jones. She's Galen Erso's daughter. They set out to verify whether this message is real or not, whether the Empire actually is on the verge of completing a planet-killing battle station. This was another kind of disappointment for me when it was originally announced. I again thought, well, that seems kind of like a pointless thing. The idea that you'd show us the story of how the Rebels got the Death Star plans didn't seem like the most thrilling and creative use of these anthology movies to me. But I really love this. It's one of my two favourite Disney Star Wars movies. It's probably my third favourite Star Wars movie, full stop, behind Revenge of the Sith in number one and Last Jedi in number two. This is what the anthology movies should have been, experimenting in genre, experimenting in tone. It's sad to me that after the the lack of success that Solo experienced, they seem to be at the very least, pausing their anthology plan, if not cancelling it in its entirety. A lot of that stuff is going to Disney Plus in shows, like with Mandalorian and Kenobi and all of that. This is a war movie, very much so. There's a lot of stuff about being behind enemy lines, about surveillance and subterfuge. You've got the the squad, the Magnificent Seven sort of squad that's on this suicide mission. It's darker and it's more brutal. The male lead in this movie is, in his opening scene, forced to kill a colleague so that he doesn't give up information under torture. It's It shows how a, re- how a rebellion kind of needs those darker elements mm. to survive. It's a lot less black and white with a lot more shades of grey. The The culture of the Empire is explored. We really see what life is like under Imperial rule, which we never really do get to see in the original trilogy, at least in any really developed area. I mean, as we said last week, the original trilogy really sticks to the, the backwaters, doesn't it? Tatooine and... Yeah. And... Endor, like Tatooine's really the only properly, the only planet with actual like towns and cities in it that we ever even go to in the original trilogy when you stop to think about it. Really? With the exception of Cloud City, which is just a mining station floating above a gas giant. And I guess the Ewok village, but that's, that doesn't really count. Hmm. It's like an encampment, really. Well, there's no infrastructure there. There's no Imperial presence there. Oh, yeah, but I'm sure that yeah. they've got an economy. <laughs> this, yeah. So this is the first time we really see any like the Empire in action, and that's interesting. Like, there's that really cool image of there's this town on the planet Jeddah, but above it's just the Star Destroyer suspended there, mm. and it it's just like, really uh, it's a blockade. Yeah, and a much more successful blockade, and it just shows you one of uh. Gareth Evans was the director, right? Gareth Edwards. Show his ta- Gareth Edwards his talent at scale. Yes, uh, he was the same that guy who did Godzilla, and like size and scope is something Edwards does very, very well, and that really comes across here. Yeah, I I love how black, how not black and white it is. I like how morally grey all of the characters are. Even someone like Krennic, 
you can see where he's coming from with wanting to get power, I guess. He's such a weak little man that it's fun seeing him go up against someone as just unflinchingly evil and cruel as Grand Moff Tarkin. I love Ben Mendelsohn in this. Oh, yeah. Mm. He is fantastic. I got the same vibes when he with his scenes with Vader as I did with his scene with Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. Yes. It's basically, do you feel you're in charge? Yeah, Ben, ben Mendelsohn is fantastic. The acting in general is really good, and they're given really juicy characters as well. Yeah. They're given good characters to work with. Like Cassie and Andor, played by Diego Luna. K2SO, played by Alan Tudyk. I love the silence, you backhand. There's a fresh one if you mouth off. Both of them are coming back for that prequel series. Oh, I cannot wait. Jin is the least interesting character, though. To me, she has a pretty obvious arc, and there aren't really that many layers to her. To what about Saw? Properly Saw Gerrera. Saw Gerrera's fun. I mean, the most interesting part of that for me is what a deep cut he is. He is a character from Star Wars The Clone Wars. He turns yeah. up as a young man for three episodes in Star Wars The Clone Wars, and they dug him out again years later for this live-action movie. Like, I very much enjoy that. Like, it's not necessary you know that, but it's so rewarding if you do know it. Yeah. As I said, Jin is the least interesting. Felicity Jones is good in it, though. I want to send you two pictures and tell me that Felicity Jones and Eddie Redmayne should not be cast as brother and sister. These are the same picture. <laughs> like, it's all I could see this time watching it, because I don't think I'd seen anything with Eddie Redmayne in it when I first saw Rogue One. But they look, they're just, their facial structures just look so alike. They really... Mm. Sh- if I was a director, I would just, like, keep a notebook connecting names that look similar so that if I ever needed to cast, like, a brother-sister or a mother-son mother or a, you know, father-daughter or anything like that. Aren't they in that Aeronaut I think they are. Movie? Yeah. That one about the hot air balloon. Well, yes, the, the air, hot air balloon disaster movie, the Aeronauts, yeah. yes. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I thought so. I, I thought I... Saw something about them being in something together. Not playing relatives, though, which is a miss. Some Someone get Mike Flanagan on the phone, I guess. He, he's a fan of casting people who look similar. A lot of the character arcs are a little thin, but you do get some really good fleshed-out ones, particularly the Cassian Andor arc. The adventure stuff and the action stuff is all really good. The set pieces are really fun and really well executed. It has an excellent final aerial space battle yeah and there's a lot of like a lot of gritty violence too oh yeah a lot of it's like in the dirt ground level stuff there's one scene with a lightsaber and it is the The best best. it's the best (laughs) it is so so good this movie really shows how terrifying the empire is because you're getting it not from someone who's learning to become a Jedi, you're getting it from someone... You're getting it from people who... You get it from the grunts. ...either don't care about the Force, or are utterly unconnected to it. You've, you've got people who would have no chance against someone like Darth Vader, for example. 
and seeing it from that perspective is so rewarding. Although, I have to say, in that scene in his castle on Mustafar, he does walk into the room as if he's on RuPaul's Drag Race. Yes! He walks in like, Slay Queen! Yeah, and and the moment I saw that, I was like, I see you. I see what you're doing. What do you expect? He wears big black boots and a cape. Yeah. <laughs> he's a drama queen. Anakin he's going always to was. be fabulous. I really, really like the final half hour. I, I like that they commit totally to yep. what needs to happen at the end of that movie. It it really fulfills that whole last stand kind of kind of trope that so many war movies have, and it does it brilliantly. And you don't get that in a lot of Star Wars. No, I'm I'm glad Disney let them go as dark as they did. The use of light and shadow in it is really interesting. You get a lot of shots of things moving out of shadow and into light and the sort of symbolism of that in, in, in that way, the, the Death Star plans coming into the realm of public knowledge and, and things like that. And obviously there's the connection to Obi-Wan and Luke about to enter the scene, but that's all really interesting. Edwards uses that in an, inter- in an interesting thematic way. And... I know that people have have mixed opinions about the recreations of Peter Cushing and Carrie Fisher in this movie, the digital recreations of them, as they would have looked in 1977. But I I really appreciate them, actually. I can't... Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're obviously digital, obviously. You can... But they're, they're expertly done. Like, they're digital in the same way that someone like Snoke is... is digital like you can tell that it's a cgi creation but it looks spectacular the only real difference is is that we we know that they're real people right so so that kind of disconnect exists in a way that it doesn't with someone like snoke yeah but with with talking in this the way that they just grab peter cushing's face and just use it there he's a scary looking fella in the original trilogy He's pretty terrifying to look at, and he's scary in this too. He cuts an intimidating figure regardless. Yeah. It is really good CG, and it's really, like, we're getting so, so close to recreating that stuff to the point that you can't even see it. Like, we're a few decades away from that. I mean, mm, yeah. even like Jar Jar Binks was state-of-the-art in 1999, and now you think we're talking about something that came out in 2016. You know, the the, the jump there, the, the the jump where you you see the rubberiness when Christopher Lee's face is imposed over someone in his fight scenes in the prequel trilogy compared to the recreation in great detail of these human beings' faces that we all know and... and quite intimately we're getting really really close to being able to do that kind of thing to de-age actors in the way that carrie fisher is de-aged or to bring back dead actors to reprise roles if necessary and it's not like they uh, just created him out of thin air they are using a stand-in oh yeah and he's giving the performance They've just mapped more of the facial features onto this new person. It's all about the little details. This is this is what the anthology films should have been. 
and yeah. Solo was a miss in that regard. They should have been as ambitious and experimental in genre as this one was. The Mandalorian carries on this kind of tone. This serious Star Wars genre hopping kind of vibe. It carries it on perfectly. Like, there's this conversation about the term grounded when it comes to blockbusters, and for me, stuff like Rogue One and The Mandalorian, and even Solo to a certain extent, they have a groundedness in terms of character and emotion, not so much in the laws of reality, which is honestly the way to talk about it. It's it's about having a grounded tone and a... It's about taking it seriously enough. It's taking it seriously enough, but not taking it so seriously that it becomes difficult to consume. Because hmm. at the end of the day, you're still going to make something for, for your audience. And I would like to see more Star Wars like this. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting places that they can take that universe. I, I, yeah. I've said it before, but I really want a Star Wars movie or TV series that is a horror series like alien style out in the the middle of nowhere derelict ship sort of sci-fi horror in the star wars universe yeah i think that that would be really really cool anyways that's me done for the week so what about you two what have you been watching right so it's been kind of a hectic week so we haven't watched all that much or if we have i just can't remember yeah it's been that kind of week but what we do remember we watched is some more smallville Now, you recognize last week we didn't have anything to talk about from Smallville. Nothing scary happened. That was like three episodes completely normal. I think the week before that, too. Yeah, like, we've been watching episodes, but there's been nothing to really report on. Other than, obviously, the continued obviously, presence, the continued of, presence Alice of Alice and Mac. Mac. But, in this week on Save Me from Smallville, our sort of weekly deep dive into the scary shit that happens in the Superman origin story, Smallville... They come out strong in episode 8 of season 3. Lex Luthor gets gaslit, which is basically, for the members of the audience who are unaware of the term, is when you drive somebody insane by convincing them that they are insane. It's it's a whole very cruel process, um, and this happens to Lex. A person who's on the edge of sanity as it is. Yeah, and it's kind of perpetrated by his father, his father's old associate. Lana gets seriously beat up by a horse. I found that legitimately terrifying, because being trampled by a horse is possibly, I don't know, my fourth greatest fear? Of course it is. Of course it is, Harley. <laughs> no, it's the... At least it's easy to avoid. It, it, it is easy to avoid. I don't have to face it too often, but... Yeah, you're not coming up against horses every day. No. It's rare that you are in the same place as a horse and not outside of a car. So, hang on, yeah, I can't move past this just willy-nilly here. So, if if there was, like, if you were, like, at a fun fair or something and there was a horse and they were, like, doing, like, pony rides or something, would you be even able to approach the animal? Or... It's not a phobia. I'm okay with 
ponies and stuff like that. But a pony oh, is I don't have a fu- I don't, In practical I don't terms, a... a pony is really just a very small horse. It's the size that I take okay. issue with. So, you know? like, if you were... I don't know. It, I have a healthy respect to the strength and power of a horse. Say, say that there was a horse, right? <laughs> say that there... <laughs> <laughs> say that there was a horse and it's... You know, its owner was there, and it was there for some reason. I I don't know, but the owner said you can come and pat it on the head if you want. You Make up a reason and give it. Make a... up a reason. Help help us create the mental image, Lawson. Paint I a don't picture. know. You're at a rodeo, and <laughs> I know you guys are rodeo people. <laughs> and you and the owner says you can come up and you can give it a, a scratch on the head if you want. Would you be able to approach the horse? Or would that be like something where you're like, no, he's gonna step on me? I'm gonna put put the I'm gonna describe the sort of my trepidation. Remember that scene in like Prisoner of Azkaban where you have to, you know, bow to the the hippogriff mm-hmm. and be like real slow, putting your hand out. That's kind of how I'd be. I wouldn't be a belligerent prick like Draco and get myself hit, but I respect the power and majesty of the horse. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot stronger than me. It's a lot faster than a you. lot faster than me. If it wanted to kill me, it could. That that's where I'm at. A pony, it can't. Um, oh, a pony could absolutely kill you if it wanted to. It's lots like, of animals could. It's like twice your size, three times your weight at least. It could absolutely get you if it wanted to. Like if we're going by what could kill you, then there's a lot of things that you could you should be afraid of. Technically, Jean and I could kill you. It's <laughs> yeah, a, a chicken could kill you if you just fly straight for the jugular. Anyway, it's like go go getting back to this. <laughs> a hummingbird is just a flying dagger. <laughs> Goes right for the, it, like crams Ew. itself down your throat. But the the way that the horse tramples Lana is actually pretty disturbing. Wouldn't you agree, John? It, it's it's a scary moment because because Lex Luthor is being gaslit, he doesn't trust anybody. Because why would he? So Lana offers him a drink and he freaks out because he's like, no, you're trying to drug me because he thinks he's being drugged. And he pushes her against the wall, runs off. It That freaks the horse out. So the horse is like, uh, threat, 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 and just tramples the nearest thing. And the nearest thing is Lana. Yeah, and, like, her legs totally fucked. Yeah. After it, huge concussion. She nearly dies. Yeah, then again, she nearly dies, like... No, but, like, this is, like, very nearly dies because Mm. of something that Clark couldn't control. And, you know, it's like, I just don't mess with horses. That, that, that's my thing. It's just, like, I'm not gonna play stupid games and get rendered... Stupid by a kick to the head. It's not going to happen. Anyway, that episode ends with Lex Luthor being put in a padded cell in Bell Reeve Sanatorium, as hurt by Johnny Cash plays. Yes. I would have preferred the Nine Inch Nails version. I would have preferred that as well. Episode 9. Now, Bell Reeve is where all the media freaks that haven't died are being kept. Particular ones of note, Superboy, who is the the kid who gained Clark's powers in season one. Mm-hmm. Duplicator, the the guy who splits himself in two. The Christian Slater sounding kid. Yeah. And the Freak Hunter, who is the guy who 
forged the first kryptonite bullet. And it's a massive bigot against powered people. Yeah, and it's it's just a really insane episode because Lex's continued mental degradation attempts to escape. It's just really disturbing. He 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 essentially gets memories electrocuted out of him. Yeah, he gets the shock treatment. In essence, an electrical lobotomy of a kind. He he recovers. He was legitimately having a mental break. Yeah. But it's still so disturbing. And it's disturbing that Lionel is 100% fine with this, even though he's the one who drove him mad. It's fucked up. Oh, yeah. So that was us for the week. So we're just going to get into the deep dive now. But first, we're going to show you the trailer for New, New Hope. Hope. Yeah. Yep, New Hope. So this is the trailer for you to listen to. Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Luke Skywalker was just a farm boy until he received a mysterious message from a princess. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. She's beautiful. Star Wars, starring Mark Hamill. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. Aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? Harrison Ford. Boring conversation anyway. Luke, we're gonna get I think we took a wrong turn. Carrie Fisher. Good luck. Alec Guinness. You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. 20th Century Fox presents the most extraordinary motion picture of all time, Star Wars. Here's where the fun begins. No legendary adventure of the past could be as exciting as this romance of the future. Here they come. May the Force be with you in Star Wars. That was the adorably old-fashioned trailer to Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. It is the first of three movies we will be talking about today, all of them science fiction adventure movies comprising the original Star Wars trilogy. The other two are Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back, and Episode 6, Return of the Jedi. A New Hope is directed by George Lucas, The Empire Strikes Back is directed by Irvin Kirshner, and Return of the Jedi is directed by Richard Marquand. And together, they follow the adventures of a farm boy on a backwater planet named Luke Skywalker. He's played by Mark Hamill. He's drawn into a galactic civil war after stumbling onto two droids with important information for the Rebel Alliance. And he befriends the roguish smuggler Han Solo, played by Harrison Ford, and the fierce freedom fighter Princess Leia, played by Carrie Fisher, as the Alliance brings the fight to the Empire and its sinister helmeted enforcer, Darth Vader, played by David Prowse and voiced by James Earl Jones. So why don't we start off by going around and each saying what we all thought of the original Star Wars trilogy, just briefly in little 30-second observations. What were your thoughts, Sean? It's obviously iconic. It's a technical marvel for the time. The miniatures, the costuming, the... Just the ingenuity of the whole trilogy is just exceptional. It's one of those big... It's one of the first massive, big pop culture franchises. And you can see why it was so massive. It For the time, A New Hope, it wasn't called that at the time, but Star Wars, 
would have blown people's minds. It it would have been something that people hadn't really seen properly before. At this level, with this amount of technical wizardry. That being said, there are some issues in terms of direction, because George Lucas kind of has a hands-off approach to a lot of it. And you can see the actors really doing a lot of the character building themselves. And you can see that on screen as well. You got fantastic turns from Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher. A star-making performance from uh, Mark Hamill. And yeah, it's just... It's Star Wars, man. It's Star Wars. The music, the technology, the action scenes. It's just pure imagination. Thank you, Jean, for your 30-second thoughts on the Star Wars original trilogy. What about you, Harley? What did you think? I I like it. It's It has troubles with pace at times, but it's so clearly iconic, and it, it wears its sort of... Ta- it, it, it ages poorly in some elements, but in others, I still can't figure out how they did it, and I had a good time with it. Not as well a good a time as I had with the prequel trilogy, but still had a good time with it. This holds up magnificently. I mean, it's a remarkable cinematic achievement, both in terms of storytelling and in terms of technical bona fides. It's a real accomplishment, and it changed cinema. The Empire Strikes Back, I have the unpopular opinion of thinking that it's actually the weakest of the original trilogy, but we'll get into that. The final movie, I mean... This is just, overall, it's it's great pop mythology. It's aged as a whole, but it's it has held up really well. And technologically, it is awe-inspiring. It still is. So, perhaps we should start by just talking about, very broadly, the Joseph Campbell thing. Because yeah. George Lucas, by his own admission, you know, built a lot of the story around the idea of the monomyth, which was uh, an idea put forth by the academic Joseph Campbell, that all cultures in the world have a common myth in terms of in terms of its structure, that you have a whole bunch of pretty standard things that heroes go through, pretty standard character archetypes. Um, and George Lucas really responded to this and tried to make a story that fit into that, that outline. And I think that that, probably goes a long way to explain its sort of universal appeal. It really does feel like like all at once, like a cool science fiction film and a fairy tale and a Western and a, you know, story of ancient mythology. Like all at once, it feels like all of these things. I mean, and it really plays into that starting thing a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It works. Yeah, like how many movies do you see nowadays that open with a text crawl? Well, uh, That's an old, old technique. That's from the serials that George Lucas grew up with, where in order to get you into something, they just had to explain a lot of stuff and just throw you in. I found, I found the quote here. In his famous book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Campbell describes the narrative pattern as follows. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. So this fits in like a whole lot of things. Pretty much every myth you can think of. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, it's the it's the hero's journey. It almost every most stories that you've heard can in some way relate back to this monomyth. Campbell said there were seventeen stages to this in different parts. There is first off the departure, the call to adventure, the refusal of the call, the supernatural aid received by a guide or magical helper or mentor, the crossing of the first threshold, leaving the known limits of his world and venturing into an unknown and dangerous realm where the rules and limits are unknown, the belly of the whale, which represents a person's willingness to undergo a metamorphosis, the road of trials, the meeting with the goddess, where hero gains items where the hero gains items given to him that will help him in the future. The woman as the temptress. The atonement with the father slash abyss. The apotheosis, at which a point of realization in which a greater understanding is achieved. The ultimate boon is the achievement of the goal of the quest. I mean, this is all very, very classic stuff, and you can fit it into Star Wars to a T. Yeah. And, like, I'm sure that when you're reading those out, members of the audience were just picturing those moments from Star Wars. Uh, I was, I was picturing those moments from Lord of the Rings, honestly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's the it's, same it's, thing. It's, it's that, it's Ulysses, it's the Odyssey, the Iliad. Exactly. For this, for example, the belly of the whale, that's when they're in the Death Star mm-hmm. and A New Hope, very clearly. Uh, meeting with the goddess... I would see that as meeting Yoda, uh, gaining the further training and instruction. Now I'm just imagining, like, a shampoo commercial yeah. with, like, long, luxurious hair and Yoda just steps out. Hold on, we just had a drop out. Yeah, just keep going, we're fine. Did you hear my description? No. Nope. You'll hear it in the edit. The, 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 the meeting with the temptress is clearly when Luke wants to fuck his sister. Sure. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's the one thing where you can kind of see that not all of this was was designed from the beginning. Jesus Christ, no. It's oh, the, no, the no, no, it's sweet not. home Alabama elements of the Luke, the Luke Leia relationship. <laughs> yeah, a uh, Hans Spice Runner. He's a moonshine bootlegger. <laughs> uh... Well, maybe that's we'll just how about... they do it on Alderaan. You don't know. Yeah. Maybe everyone kisses everyone. What What a bum deal for Luke, by the way. Luke gets to go and live in poverty on a desert planet farming moisture, and Leia gets to go and be <laughs> Princess of Bloody Space Switzerland. Yeah. It's like moisture, the thing that occurs normally, you know. In pretty much everywhere except where he is. Yeah. I'd be pretty pissed but, off with Yoda and Obi-Wan if I was him. Oh, I'm sure that he was having some discussions off camera with, you know, Yoda and Obi and all of them. That'd be like a, like, a, a you fun... You put me into poverty, you little green bastard. That'd be like a fun, like, alternate version sitcom. Uh, what is it? Three Men and a Baby, that old movie, but instead of them, it's Two Men and a Baby, it's Yoda and Obi-Wan, like, trying to look after, like, baby just, baby Luke and all of the hilarious family-friendly hijinks that they get into. No, 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 no. Three Men? You throw in the Force Ghost of Qui-Gon. <laughs> yes! Right. And, and he tries to catch him, but he's a ghost. Oh, I love that. 
I suppose let's take uh, some time to talk about how clearly not planned out this trilogy was. Yeah. So George Lucas has always maintained that his original plan, he, he, he says he wrote the outline for these first three movies all at once. Yeah, they were all meant to be like the one movie. Yeah. And then he realized he wasn't going to get that done. So he took the first act and made it a new hope with the intention of coming back to it and completing it. And then after that, he had plans for the prequel trilogy and then he had plans for the sequel trilogy. There is some uh, documentation online that as the production on the original trilogy went on, he found himself getting more and more tired. You know, the commitment to it was all consuming. Uh, There are some sources that say that that put a strain on his personal life. He certainly did get divorced shortly after the the ending of production on the original trilogy. And he so he, he, he sort of decided to can the, the sequel trilogy, that he was going to wrap it all up in this original three. And that the idea originally was that Leia was not going to be Luke's sister. Luke's sister was going to be named, I believe, Nelleth and to have been taken to the other side of the galaxy to be trained as a Jedi, and that a lot of the sequel trilogy was going to be about, be about her and Luke finally meeting. So And fingers crossed, not kissing. Yeah, yeah. So when he decided to wrap things up, he, he pretty quickly threw the Leia thing in there to resolve the Skywalker lineage, because he had kind of already hinted at it with the no, there is another in Empire. Yeah. But yeah, this is made up as it goes along in some respects, but in other respects it is planned out in advance. I think you can make a pretty good case for the fact that the the, the father reveal is, is probably planned from the beginning, given the very specific language surrounding it. Uh, I don't know, I just... It's there in the Campbell monomyth. No, I understand <laughs> that, but when we were watching it, I don't know, the... So what I told you was true. From a certain point of view. That's bullshit. Hey, Obi-Wan. Hey, Obi-Wan, you're a coward. It's a cop-out. It, it's like, he wanted something important to go down at the end of Empire. The plan Obviously. originally was him saying, I killed your father. Well, no, that's what he had Prowse say on the set. Yeah. It wasn't, that was the original plan. He put that in the script so it wouldn't leak. The only people he told the real line to were... Lawrence Kasdan, who who wrote the script, obviously, so he had to know. Irvin Kirshner, the director, and Mark Hamill was told a few minutes before the scene was shot. And Prowse got real yeah. pissy after it because he said that if he had known the real line, his body language would have been entirely different. Which, whatever. <laughs> I don't believe <laughs> you, David. Even can tell. David Prowse can tell. has just been generally, seems like he's been pretty bitter over the years that his his voice was not used. At, a, at the end of the day, you have to have a little bit of... Oh, yeah, like... Common sense about this, like... Some of the behind-the-scenes stuff in that Empire of Dreams documentary is really... You know, it's goofy with his voice. Like, a lot of the crew apparently joked and called him Darth Farmer because of his accent. Yeah, it's like, why wouldn't you use James Earl Jones? It's the obvious choice. Okay, so let's get into some of the characters, I think. All right. Uh, let's talk about Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. In my opinion, he really tightens it up in Revenge of Return of the Jedi. Yeah. That's where we get Hamill, like, really starting to act 
to the level in which he does now. Sure. Yeah. He's, he's also being asked to do something different in Return of the Jedi. He's being asked mm. to be more mature, more intellectual more in that. More complicated. More complicated than he is in these first two movies, where he is playing sort of the, the brash, impulsive farm kid, who is kind of, in a lot of ways, in over his head, and he's figuring it out as yeah. he goes along. He he gets better over the course of the series, though. He does. Uh, in the... In the first, in A New Hope, you can tell that he's not getting the direction he needs. The actors are universally better in this trilogy than they are in the prequel trilogy. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, of course. And I'll be, in the in the first movie, I mean, there are all sorts of stories about the actors basically directing themselves and basically standing up to George Lucas and gaining his permission to alter their lines so that they actually sounded reasonable when they were said. Yeah. Like, that was the the um, the famous supposed Harrison Ford quote that he said to George Lucas, you can write this shit, but you can't say it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's that. And then, of course, Lucas is replaced as director in the second and third yeah. films. So you get more of what... Since Hamill's getting that help, He's getting actual direction, which is integral for really any actor. You get a more rounded performance in Empire and Return. I really like Mark Hamill. Me too. He's underutilized. He's always been underutilized. He, I'm, I really hoped when The Last Jedi came out that he would receive sort of a boost to his mm. career and that he would come back to live action projects. Yeah, because he's fantastic in it. In a bigger way. He absolutely is. And, I mean, he got... A series regular role on Nightfall, the History Channel Knights Templar show, but that got cancelled the season after he joined. So yeah. he was in episodes of The Flash as the as the reprising yeah. his role as the trickster. Yeah, but like he, he is one of those one of those people who are just like like people like him, like Jamie Lee Curtis, like I don't know uh, Malcolm McDowell or someone like that, where. They're really good actors who are underutilized that need to go looking for a really high-profile part in a really well-written um, streaming or cable show. Absolutely. I totally agree. Like, where's Absolutely. Mark? Mark, where's the, the HBO, you know, series that Mark Hamill can get the with-and billing at the end? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and... best supporting actor at the Emmys, Mark Hamill, for this show. Like, that's what he should be... That seems to me like like a really uh, potent p- place for him to go if he wants to. I totally agree. And Mark Hamill did a lot of voice acting stuff. We've already talked about his performance as the Joker mm-hmm. in a lot of animated Batman stuff, a lot of the Batman video games. And he's just a very well-rounded actor. And the stuff he did in the 90s uh, Flash TV show... That's still young Mark Hamill, but it's still very, very good. It's very good work, and he has only gotten better over time. Yeah. Uh, one person who's been good pretty much the whole time is Harrison Ford. You can tell he There's cares. This whole th- when he cares, when he cares. Uh, but he's had a huge career. A lot of stone roles and a lot of stuff. Indiana Jones. He, he, of course, was Indiana Jones. And he's one of the people who really had a career coming out of this. Uh, there's this. There's this thing that gets spoken a lot about Star Wars, especially when you're a key actor, that starring as a major role in Star Wars is kind of a career ender. Uh, and it does happen. 
And it's unfortunate because you see the sort of stuff with like Mark Hamill not getting the big roles that he deserves. I feel like it's it's pretty much fifty fifty. You know? Yeah. You get Harrison Ford, there's Natalie Portman, there's Ewan McGregor, there's Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley. Carrie Fisher. Yeah. Do you really want to hold Carrie Fisher up as someone whose acting career went a lot of places? Fair point. So it's unfortunate when certain actors slip through the cracks of it. Mm. Because it can be a very good opportunity to get your work out there. Harrison Ford as Han Solo is fantastic. I much prefer this character of Indiana Jones, not only for reasons we talked about on a previous episode, but because he is a lot rougher around the edges than Indy is. Han Solo, like we mentioned before that Alden Ehrenreich couldn't really latch onto, has this edge to him. He's a scoundrel in the truest sense. We see that in his first scene when he's bargaining to get them off of Tatooine. The then he gets confronted by Greedo, and okay, and shoots we him talk first. About this, so the shooting first controversy. So this is not entirely George Lucas's fault. Um, the story apparently goes that the reason that that is altered in the special editions in '97 is because during in the interim, um, the PG-13 rating has been introduced in America. And so when they go to the MPAA to rate the re-release in 1997, because he shot first, the MPAA wants to give it a PG-13. And because they don't want that, because it was always PG, because it is, at that point, Star Wars has never had a PG-13 before. It's supposed to be kid-friendly. They make that edit. So to be totally fair to George Lucas, it's not something that he woke up one morning and said, that seems like a really great idea, let's do that. It seems like something he was forced into by the ratings agency. Yeah, I agree. And it's it does act to soften the character a smidge. And they've been, like, trying but... to manipulate it all over the... ever since, yeah. like, like changing the, the speed at which he returns fire or having them both fire at almost the same time. Have him just, like, like... Digitally, like, shift over yeah. in his seat to dodge the... My monkey. See, and this is the thing here. They've got to just be doing it to mess with people at this point, right? Like, there's Absolutely. no reason whatsoever to put the line... My ...in the most recent remaster, other than to add something to mess with people. Like, it's an in-joke at this point, almost. Yeah. Absolutely. There was an, there's an interview here in Empire not the movie, the magazine, with the guy who originally played Greedo. Empire asks him, right before he shoots Han, Greedo says something that sounds like, My And the response is, Yeah, well, he's talking about his Scottish grandmother there. <laughs> Greedo has a, had a Scottish grandmother and an Irish grandfather and a Rhodian stepmother. That's why he shouted My just before he died. He's about to meet his grandfather. How absolutely <laughs> absurd. What is George Lucas doing? I would be interested to know how how much that was George... I, I don't think George Lucas was involved in that remastering, really. No, he was. Was he? Did he... Yeah. Order... Because it's the 4K remasters. Uh, he was involved. He's got to be doing it just to mess with people at this point. Like, there's this fantastic story break episode, and... You know, shout out to the folks at Story Break. A much bigger, better podcast. A much bigger podcast, but it's a fantastic one. They did a whole episode 
about my monkey and figuring out what it meant to Greedo, Greedo's backstory, this entire like Greedo a Star Wars story sort of thing. And it's fantastic and I really recommend it. I always but, liked Greedo. Always. Yeah, and like, I've got an action figure of Greedo. Yeah. So Well well we're already talking about the special edition changes. So So let's get into that. Yeah. Uh I have never really had a problem with them. As as I have explained last week, my introduction to Star Wars came post-1997, so I don't think I've ever seen any versions of the original Star Wars trilogy that, that don't have at least that initial wave of alterations. I, I do think that some of them work better than others. I think that all of the stuff with that they've done with space, with the spaceships, with the planets... That stuff all works fine. I yeah. mean, I, that never yeah. takes me out of the movie. That stuff's all fine. It's when they start pulling out that vintage 1997 CGI to make digital characters that exist within the same scene and shot as live-action actors who were filmed 20 years beforehand. That's where it starts to be an issue. Like, yeah. those yeah. establishing shots when they're arriving in Mos Eisley... The Jabba the Hutt scene, especially in A New Hope, yeah. um, the way that they... Because when they filmed the Jabba the Hutt scene, he was going to be a human being. Yeah, and so Han, Han just walks behind him as he as he goes around. But now he's a giant slug, so there's a tail there. And so they digitally move Han up to make it look like he stepped on Jabba's tail. Which, okay, fine, but... The Jabba the Hutt that we see in Episode 6 would have immediately had Han Solo killed for doing that. Absolutely. <laughs> like... And are you telling me Salacious Crumb wouldn't have been there? Salacious B. Crumb. Don't forget the the initial. He has a middle name, John. Sure. What does the B stand for? I don't know. Boris, probably. Bastard. <laughs> Stands for bastard. But I'm looking it up right now. That's... I, I totally agree. It's... A lot of the establishing shots themselves have a lot of added humor to them. Uh, for example, there's bits of like stormtroopers falling off their mounts. Uh, one thing I do like about the the 1997 changes is the addition of Tamura Mosin's voice Me too. as Boba Fett. It just helps the continuity. Yeah, of it, really. it does. Yeah, they they and they clean some things up there in. In a way, I like that they bring Ian McDermott in to re-record that um, the that scene in Empire. Empire, yeah, which was done for the 2004 DVD, not the not the re-release. But um, yeah, that that's smart. I like. I know this is a controversial one, but I like the inclusion of Hayden Christensen at the end uh, of Return of the Jedi. Yeah, mainly I because I mean, okay, Sebastian Shaw, like. But he's never looked like he does when Sebastian Shaw is dressed up as a Force ghost at the end, ever yeah. in his life. He was scarred and in a in a robot suit long before he ever had the opportunity to look like Sebastian Shaw does at the end. There, it's yeah. kind of like if I died and came back as a ghost and I had a mohawk for some reason. I've never yeah. had a mohawk. Why would I have one in death? <laughs> it's... Yeah. I totally agree. A lot of that sort of stuff, like the small shifting is very effective. And it and especially if you're watching it in chronological order like we've done, the inclusion of Hayden Christensen has power to it. Yeah. Like it feels yeah, it like the ending to 
a, a longer story. It feels like an emotional payoff to this. It feels like Anakin's death. Yeah. Okay, and... so I've got uh, the Wikipedia article about Salacious B. Crumb here. Salacious B. Crumb was a Kowakian monkey lizard who worked as a jester in the court of the crime lord Jabba the Hutt during the Galactic Civil War. Uh, the article here obviously has Jabba's full name, but I'm not even going to attempt. Desilogic Tier. Jabba Desilogic Tier. Yeah. Known for his shrill laughter, Crumb kept his master amused until his death during the rescue of Han Solo. Salacious B. Crumb was known for his shrill cackling laughter and sophisticated sense of humor, like his fellow monkey lizards. <laughs> sophisticated? I love the idea that sure? for all that we see him do in Return of the Jedi, when he's actually on the job, he's doing like really highbrow stand-up comedy or something. Yeah, re- he's like really doing some good political satire like talking about Yeah. Like he's like the Empire. Like George um George what's his name? George Carville? I think so. Yeah. Like he's pulling out that really biting commentary on the Empire. Just, like, pretending to dress up like the Emperor and all that shit. Yeah, Salacious Carlin, is the Aaron Sorkin of Star Wars. George Carlin. That's who I was thinking of. Yeah. Now I'm just thinking about Salacious Crumb, Salacious B. Crumb, just doing his words you can't say on a hollow projector. <laughs> oh, that'd be nice. Uh, I like the idea of Crumb, a Star Wars story. Just have it be like this real comedy, like a straight-up comedy. Jabba struck up a unique deal with the monkey lizard. If Crumb could amuse Jabba at least once a day, he would be allowed to eat and drink if he ple- as much as he pleased. If he failed, however, he would be slain. Crumb lived in this manner for over a dozen standard years, and henceforth sat beside Jabba to mercilessly tease and in- imitate captives, amusing his master greatly with his mimicry and laughter. Crumb even imitated visitors, courtiers, and even Jabba himself, and used his position as hot dais to steal morsels of food. Jabba's noxious pet was tolerated because of the amusement he brought Jabba, and because of his unwavering support for his master. Crumb was present at Jabba's side when the Dark Lord of the Sith, Darth Vader, arrived at Jabba's Jabba's palace to negotiate with the hut, and later accompanied his master aboard the sail barge to celebrate with Vader. Crumb laughed uproariously as Jabba's gangsters fired at a herd of panthers, causing Vader to threaten the creature's life should he laugh in his presence again. (laughs) (laughs) I would have loved to see that. That is so him. That is so Anakin. I, I, I can see Vader... He was pissed to be on Tatooine to begin with. I can see Vader having proper issues with Salacious Crumb. <laughs> Personality and traits. Salacious was a natural performer, and he was blessed with a panoply of physical features suitable for a crowd-pleasing clown. Floppy ears, messy hair, wide and oh-so-hypnotic eyes, gangly limbs, clumsy, and an infectious cackle. But he didn't possess much of a brain between those outsizes. So uh, I don't know... I don't know where the hell they're getting sophisticated comedy from in Wikipedia. Oh, no, he seemed pretty crass, to be honest. Yeah, he seemed anyway, pretty, like... Like, when we were watching... Well, he was in that, um, in the Legends thing. They they did those short stories, right? Tales from the Moss Eisley Cantina, Tales from Jabba's Palace. So he had his own, mm. his own short story in Tales from Jabba's Palace. Yeah? Yeah. Huh. Anyway, when we were watching the Star Wars movies through before... 
Rise of Skywalker came out, Dad was there when we were watching the, watching Return of the Jedi, and he said, I hate that little bastard thing, which, which was just hilarious to me. One of my favorite side characters, not even a side character, but like semi-background character, Ponda Baba in the Mos Eisley Cantina. He's the guy who gets his he, arm chopped off. Yeah. His story is, he's an Aqualish who, Ponda Baba was a male Aqualish thug who rescued Dr. Cornelius Everzan from a bounty hunter. The two formed a partnership and began to smuggle spice for the crime lord Jabba the Hutt, resulting in him becoming a wanted man. Shortly before the Battle of Yavin, he was a patron in Charmin's spaceport Hantina on the planet Tatooine, where he instigated an argument with Luke Skywalker while bored and drunk. Everson claimed that Baba did not like Skywalker and began to threaten the youth, leading to a brief confrontation with Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, his arm was severed, and Everson later tried to reattach Baba's arm using his medical training, nearly killing him, but eventually giving him a robot arm that has a flamethrower in it. He would often... Ponda Baba would oftentimes reflect back on that time. He threatened the young Luke Skywalker, saying that he was he regretted bullying that blonde human teenager. <laughs> the the interesting thing is he appeared on, in on on the planet Jeddah before it exploded, uh, with his partner Doctor Everson. Yeah, that guy with a messed up face—that's a doctor. Yeah, he's got a medical degree. Uh, this gets interesting. Doctor Cornelius Everson was a human male from the planet Alsakin, who was a promising cosmetic surgeon until he became gripped by madness and began practicing creative surgery on his patients, leaving his victims horribly disfigured. During an encounter with a bounty hunter which left his face hideously scarred, Pondababa rescued him and they formed a friendship from then. He was personal doctor to Dryden Voss. Oh yeah? Yeah. He created an order of servants known as the Decraniated. He was nicknamed the Mutilator of Milvane. There's a whole lot of backstory to this guy. It's like some horrifying shit. It's like some real Dr. Death stuff. But I'm not going to get too much further into that, because that's getting real dark. Yeah. Do you, wanna, do you want to know who the saddest character in the entire Star Wars franchise is? It's not Rats Too Well. It's not it's Rats, not too, rats well. too Well. It's the guy who was the beast keeper for Jabba the Hutt. You you remember how in Return of the Jedi, he starts crying Mm -hmm. because the Rancor's dead? His name is Malakili. This is a quote from one of the novels. I have no value to to you. Kill me. My creature, Patissa, is dead. He was a slave that Jabba had bought, and Malakili became the beast master for him. He became fond of Jabba's rancor, Patissa, and the creature saved his life during a Tusken Raider attack. Sympathizing with Patissa, Malakali planned to one day escape with the beast. After the obviously the rancor is killed with the giant door, Malakali was one of the last to leave Jabba's palace after Jabba was killed. He wandered into the Dune Sea toward the Great Pit of Carcoon. Feeling purposeless without his creatures, Malakili considered committing suicide and wandered further into the desert. He was then found by a character called the Marshal, Cobb Vant, and eventually he traveled to Moss Eisley and opened a restaurant. <laughs> you know, that happens a lot with these side characters. Have you noticed that? Like, 
They've o- they're always opening restaurants. Last year, when we were talking about the Max Rebo band and our Lord and Savior, Drippy McCall, they talk about Max Rebo, our fantastic elephant boy, and how he opened up a restaurant in Curaçao. Do, does, do people just open up restaurants willy-nilly? Is that a thing that happens in real life? I had a, uh, a teacher at school who once ran a restaurant, yeah. He was, he was a strange man. He told us, he would tell us really weird stories about his life. Like, when he was at this restaurant, one of his employees just went missing, like for months. The police were called, and then he just sort of turned up, like, months later and asked for his job back. <laughs> Like, like really just like off the beaten path stuff that really the, our maths teacher had no business trying to talk to us about on a school day. Look, no, it was nothing inappropriate, but it was just like, what are we really doing here, sir? Are we learning maths or are we talking about your former <laughs> business ventures? <laughs> Jesus. Like, I, I really like the side characters. and Everyone has a story. It's Everyone fantastic. Story. The amount of Star Wars characters specifically side characters who have contemplated killing themselves is wild that's do you wild think, do to you me. think do you think that when what's the beast master's Malakili. name Malakili was in the desert just wandering further in do you think he heard the flute sounds like the the musical tone do you think he heard droopy like waft across the yeah do you think he just heard his music everyone hears his desert. music in the desert in the silence there he is He's he within us all, Harley. Alright, let's move back to some of the narrative stuff. Um, <laughs> this is narrative, Lawson! It's just this not is all canon! Key. It's just not key narrative. I th- uh, anyway, I let's think... talk about Leia. Yeah. Carrie Fisher. She's just great in this. She, Her character is one of the most clearly developed when we're introduced to her. And I like the character's ferocity and wit. Especially when talking shit to Tarkin. I recognized your foul stench when I was brought on board. Tarkin, of course, pulls the uh, ultimate reversal trap card. It's like, <laughs> you told me where it is. I'm just gonna do it anyway. Then he just blows up Alderaan. The, yeah, Carrie Fisher, have you guys seen the clip of her giving a speech at that American Film Institute uh, celebration of George Lucas? No, I'll, I don't think so. We'll watch it after this. It's probably worth putting a clip in there. She's she's great fun. She's very amusing the way that she talks about it. She talks about how George Lucas owns her likeness. <laughs> that the idea that George is a sadist, <laughs> but like any abused child wearing a metal bikini changed to a giant slug about to die, <clears throat> I keep coming back for more. Only a man like George could bring us whole new worlds populated by vivid, extraordinary characters and providing Mark and Harrison and myself with enough fan mail and even a small, merry band of stalkers. (laughs) It's lovely. Keeping us entertained for the rest of our unnatural lives. She's... She was just... A brilliant, funny person. Yeah. And, and yeah. Taken by it's 2016, back when 2016 was the worst year of recent history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
That was oh like God, the that was like that? the the cruel knife twist at the end, though. That like for a little while it looked yeah. like she'd be all right after the initial health problem. Yeah. And then it's just like in the last couple of days before the end of 2016, boom. Yeah, I, I remember where I was when I found out we were driving back from camping because when we were camping there was no signal. Yeah. No internet or anything, and while catching up on all the news, I just saw it. And I know my heart dropped. Funny thing is, the same thing happened about George Michael. So yeah, yeah. So what you're telling me is, when you go camping, people die. <laughs> no, hey, people die all the time, Lawson. It just happened. It just happens to occur at a similar time. Right. People die all the time. <laughs> tune in. Tune in in the new year to find out which of Harley and John's favorite celebrities died while they were camping this Christmas. We're not camping this Christmas. And we'll have signal. <laughs> oh, all right. Um, and and the celebrities the world over breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> <laughs> the the setup though. of the world in A New Hope is interesting because it kind of just throws us in at the deep end, doesn't it? We start yeah. in media res. Yeah, it does. I mean, we start with a story already well underway. The Empire is already in power. They're already chasing down this ship. Obi-Wan's off in the desert, Luke is there. Like, when you... I mean, obviously, we've come at this from a chronological perspective in terms of the the arc of the story. But when you look at, at 1977, you know, seeing this as the first the first installment in this series, the world building here is really interesting. And you get introduced to all of these concepts in a really measured fascinating way that is that is one of the the really i think one of the things that made the star wars universe so compelling and gave it some of its longevity is that it from the very start was so detailed and textured and it all unfolded as unfolded at such a compelling rate that there was all of this all of these layers and different nooks and crannies that were so ripe for exploration that those original movies do such a good job at unraveling. This first one in particular. I totally agree. And I find it very interesting that we start following C-3PO and R2-D2. Mm. And because, in a in a way, R2-D2 himself is the chronicler of all of this. Yeah, no one wipes he, his memory. He's been there for everything. He knows everything. And R2-D2's always great in every appearance. But C-3PO in... A New Hope, I like more than in any of the others, because in A New Hope, he's less of pure comedy relief, and that's less of the him getting knocked around. Yeah. Because in the prequels specifically, he was just there as a funny thing, and I think the the most egregious point of that is in Attack of the Clones. But I agree with Harley, he's more measured in A New Hope. He's, He's still... A drama queen, hmm. but he's a little bit more reasonable. And like the, the characters of like C three PO and R two D two, they're very Shakespearean in a sense. They're like those two. They're like the two guys, like you Rosencrantz and Guildenstern esque figures. They're not really similar in terms of plot significance, but they're the two guys who you attach to experiencing a lot of this stuff for the first time. One of the other things that you really notice watching it chronologically like we've done is how it doesn't necessarily stitch up cleanly with the end of the yeah. prequel trilogy. No, no, no. That the prequel trilogy 
perhaps the broad strokes of it were planned from the start, but the fine detail was clearly not. Yeah. For the most part, it works, though, and I do think that it retains... It, it gives added weight to some scenes in a really interesting way. Yeah. It gives weight to Vader's interactions with Leia. It gives weight to Obi-Wan meeting C-3PO and R2-D2 again. Like, the, like, and it's just that Alec Guinness is giving such a sort of uh, uh, unreadable performance in, during that scene specifically, like he's supposed yeah. to be mysterious when he comes in. Just as a result of that, the looks that he gives R2-D2 specifically um, carry so much unintended but perfect weight. Yeah. Exactly. We were talking about that. When Alec Guinness looks at R2-D2, I'm like, they're both, like, aware of each other. It may have taken R2-D2 a little bit of time to recognize him, but, yeah, yeah, he knows who he is. Yeah, yeah, because because if you look at R two D two, he doesn't have a face. He's completely inscrutable. I was up. just I was reading into it, but I like the fact that Luke keeps with R two D two could be the you most just wait foul mouth until thing. like the the fiftieth re release where they patch in new audio of Obi Wan, you know, saying you keep your goddamn mouth shut. <laughs> keep it shut, boy. Um, I like how. Luke keeps referring to the droids as having been owned by Obi-Wan Kenobi, and then Alec Guinness is like, I don't recall ever owning droids. Because that wasn't their relationship. And the look that he gives R2 he, when he says he, it. Yeah. Like, he didn't own yeah. them, they were Anakin's. I think for a lot of these reasons, I'm really liking the first half of A New Hope better than the second half. Like, I like a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Sure. Real, yeah, I like a lot of that... that first stuff. I mean, we only really get to Han Solo halfway through the movie. Like, we're halfway through the oh, movie yeah. before yeah. we get to the Mos Eisley Cantina, especially when you take away the end credits and you just look at the actual story content of the movie. We're halfway through. So, a lot of that is is the setup and the build-up and the world-building, and that's the stuff that I really enjoy. I mean, the just the, the unbridled creativity on display in the Mos Eisley Cantina with all of these throwaway aliens, stuff that, that to hear the, the cast and crew say looked terrible and comical on set. But once you put it on film with the right lighting, with the right editing, it... With the, with the, uh, Frigrin yeah, and the Nodes music. A, it, it just gives that, that feeling more than anything else in A New Hope of a, of a complete and occupied world. That, that these characters yeah, are existing yeah. in. Don't you love how it pans across and you see a guy who mm. literally looks like the devil? But I like that. I like to think that that is Satan, like, just watching George Lucas. Just making sure that he's keeping up his end of the bargain. But, I mean, those designs are all really fascinating. And, and that goes for the models, too. Like, the, the design of the Millennium Falcon, the design of the architecture on Tatooine, on Yavin 4, the, the Death Star, the outfits. I mean, it all holds up so beautifully in terms of just creativity. I mean, you could make this the same sets and the same costumes and, and everything now, and you... I mean, really, the only thing that dates it is the hair. The very 70s manes of hair that everyone has. They look like that yeah. they've just got back from from a, you know, the hairdresser. They, like, give me a George Harrison haircut. Like, that's what they, they all look like. 
Yeah. You can you can criticize George Lucas for his dialogue, which is mostly terrible. You can you can criticize his direction, but what you can't really criticize is his world building. His imagination yeah, is like, astounding. He he's up there with I would say Tolkien as so and even J.K. Rowling as someone who just has a world in their head and is able to just put it either into script or into a novel. They've just been able to create a world that is so full and so fleshed out and has such interest in it that other people, other authors, other screenwriters, musicians, visual artists... Video game developers can take the style of that world and make something new with it. it. That's what's so fantastic about Star Wars. You can have a war movie like Rogue One. You can have a heist movie like Solo. You can have a dark political thriller like Revenge of the Sith, I guess. You can have a knockabout fun comedy like the Holiday Special. Yeah. You're losing the words fun and comedy loosely. <laughs> yes, obviously. But Star Wars itself is so vast that, like you said, Lawson, you can have a horror movie in there. Hell, the Mandalorian gets close at points. They wrote horror novels. Yeah. The games. Like, there's... Force, Force Unleashed. Force Unleashed 2, which is a little bit worse than Force Unleashed. You got all of those games following stormtroopers. It's like it's one of those fantastic franchises. We we talked yeah. last week about my my preference for the world building in the prequel trilogy just because of what they were able to accomplish. We talked about the fact that in the original trilogy they are constrained by technology and by budget that yeah. we never really spend any time at all in the in the original trilogy in anything approaching a populated environment. We start on we, we start in the backwaters, we stay in the backwaters. So with A New Hope, you start on Tatooine, you go to the Death Star, then you go to Yavin 4. That's it. Um, and I think that, that that restriction of scale that comes as a result is uh, evident to modern eyes. I was, you know, watching it this time and just like, this this death the death star is the size of a small moon and they've got like a dozen fighters on each side fighting it out yeah. over the top of it like it it feels um restrained watching it now in a way that it obviously wouldn't have at the time this is unavoidable but uh it it does play into why i have a more enjoyable time in the first half that I do to the second, that the yeah. world building feels more complete and less restrained in the first half than it does by the time they get to most of the Death Star stuff and the Yavin 4 yeah. stuff. There was a great moment when we were watching A New Hope and it was before the scene where Obi-Wan meets Luke or Luke meets Obi-Wan or... And you just see two Tusken Raiders. One of them's got what I'm guessing is a sniper rifle and is just pointing it at Luke. And this other, the other Tusken Raider basically turns to him and says, you're not going to hit them from here. 
You're going to give away a position. Get on the Banther. Like, I said that out loud, and then, and I was like, did I get the name of that animal right? And sure enough, it was right. And I'm like, why the hell do I remember that? Out of everything, why do I remember the name of these animals who are in two scenes in the entire Star Wars <laughs> franchise? There's a, um, what's I going to say? That, that, that was one of the bits that I, the changes that they made that they shouldn't have is the replacement of the original Howl that Obi-Wan makes with, I think it was, it was, I think it was the Blu-ray release that they changed it. The first Blu-ray release, they changed it to, from the original Howl to this, this weirdo yodeling <laughs> that, that doesn't work for me, but. Tell it, Lawson it, what you told me, Harley. Right, so a couple episodes of the first se- second season of The Mandalorian have already come out. We haven't watched them yet. But apparently you see what is referred to as a crate dragon. We discussed this in last week's episode as the thing that probably killed Rats too well. <laughs> if the collision did yes. not. Uh, and apparently the sound that Obi-Wan makes in that scene is the actual cry of a crate yeah. dragon. And they bring that sound back in that episode when... The Great Dragon makes that sound. Oh, is it the yodeling? Which is, I think so. Mm. I'm, I'm sure they. I'm sure they bump up that. the bass on it. I'm sure. But you have problems with Empire. I do. I I hasten to add that I think it's a fantastic movie. All of these movies are fantastic movies. I enjoy them all very much. I I don't want to. Uh, come off as as thinking otherwise because I don't but I've never understood the superlatives that get hurled Empire's way yeah. it it is to me a bit aimless uh it's kind of meandering and the father reveal aside this is all stuff that any other Star Wars movie would have put in the opening crawl yeah well the meeting meeting, Yoda. meeting with Yoda Yo, sure but like you can easily imagine a scenario in which we just start on Dagobah with the opening crawl, you know, guided by the ghost of his former master. Luke Skywalker has journeyed to the remote planet of Dagobah to learn from an ancient Jedi warrior, you know. Yeah. This is all of the, the all of the hot stuff. I mean, when you actually think about it, you can lose the first three quarters of this movie and lose very little. The only yeah. stuff that really makes an impact on the ongoing narrative of the Star Wars universe is the Bespin stuff uh, and the corresponding stuff with uh, with Luke having his visions on, on Dagobah and leaving before his training is complete. And Han and Leia. I agree. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree. What I... I still like the Hoth sequence. We get the ATSTs. I think the big ones with the four legs are. Yeah. It makes for a remarkable uh, Star Wars Battlefront match. Oh yeah, yes, it does. Hundred percent. It it's just great. And I I think the pacing is off though. I think it goes on a little too oh, long. I, I I agree. Yeah. And it's, think about it. Protracted. What what remotely is the purpose of the whole interlude with the Wampa and Luke getting injured? There is no purpose. Like you could just have him have a dream in which. Obi-Wan comes to him. You don't need that whole 20 minutes of movie. But, but you get I the agree. Tauntaun. That's true. You get to see them climb inside, inside get a Tauntaun. You get to pull a, uh, 
pull a, 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 a Hugo Glass. It's the mm. Revenant. Oh, can we have? Can Look, we have okay. the, a when movie pe- which is basically the Revenant set in Star Wars? Please? <laughs> yes. That would be sick. Can you I can you imagine? It. It's it's basically the Revenant, but it's a bunch of stormtroopers. No, it's the Revenant, but it's Ewoks. Oh my God! Yes. We can get I mean, Warren you, Davis you can back take, for that. You can take pretty much like that. That's the great thing about the Star Wars universe. You can take pretty much any movie and say, "Well, what did we just did that movie in Star Wars?" Okay, like so Goodfellas. When the Revenant came out, mm. when the Revenant came out, I saw, I heard some people talking about, you know how DiCaprio cuts open the horse and sleeps inside yeah. the horse for warmth. I got a lot of, I heard a lot of people refer to that as like talking about the scene in Star Wars. Like in comparison, and I don't know where I was going with that. I just felt kind of Thanks weird for the anecdote. hearing that comparison. Anyway, so I I totally agree with your criticisms of that first half. It it seems aimless and pointless, but we get a pretty decent set piece and location. Yeah, we did. Uh, just just not very, just not a lot of forward thrust. Mm-hmm. I would also like to like point out. To all of the people on the internet who complain about Ray being a Mary Sue, which is a term that I hate because it's so loaded with misogyny, in the sequel trilogy, because she suddenly just knows how to use the Force and use a lightsaber. And she didn't get any training like Luke did. Get real. Get real, people. Luke spends an afternoon on the Millennium Falcon with Obi-Wan in A New Hope. He spends... A couple of days on Dagobah with Yoda, like the majority of his time on Dagobah takes place concurrently while the Millennium Falcon is hiding in the asteroid field. That's not a long period of time that he's there. And then by the time you get to the next movie, Return of the Jedi, he still hasn't gone back to Yoda, but he's got all new force powers. He knows how to build a lightsaber. He can, he can duel like he can never duel before. I mean, come on. I mean... <laughs> Ray, Ray will get into this, but Ray already had training on how to use a a staff, which can be brought over to another melee weapon. Presumably, she spent a hell of a lot more time on that island with Luke than Luke ever spent with Yoda. And she's got the Jedi texts. Mm-hmm. And and she also knows the legends of Luke Skywalker yeah. and what Luke Skywalker was capable of. So when she know discovers that she's force sensitive, she knows the stuff that she could try. And- much as I despise it, the Rise of Skywalker also throws in a whole other bunch of bullshit justifications about her lineage and about her relationship to the Force that would explain that stuff away. The dyad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I agree with you on that, Orson. That's a very, very salient point. I still like Yoda, though. Oh, Yoda's fantastic. Like, that's the masterstroke of this movie, is Yoda. Like, yeah. the introduction of him... He's sort of, uh, the way that he trolls Luke to start off with, I mean, that's just so much fun. That puppet is great. Absolutely. You you know it's just a matter of time until that puppet's gone, right? You know that, like, come the 50th or the 60th anniversary, he'll be CG. Like, that's go- that's the next major change that everyone's going to get pissed pissed about. I don't know. I think things I, I are moving of, back towards get puppets. Because in they, the sequel trilogy, they use the Yoda puppet. Sure. But they, they already moved away from, like, they already replaced the puppet in episode one with CG. But, I mean, 
I I would not be surprised at all if we get theatrical re-releases of all of the Star Wars movies in 2027 for the 50th anniversary. No, I, I expect that too. What I like about Yoda, the puppetry is fantastic, but also the vocal performance by Frank mm. Oz. It's real good stuff, particularly when Luke's, get, Luke's getting impatient and then Yoda's just like, I cannot train him. Yeah. And and again, this like he is... He breaks out of that trolliness. And again... It's this is something that good moment. the prequels give a little more weight to also, because you can't watch it coming off of Revenge of the Sith and not and not think that Yoda is thinking about Anakin. Yeah. It's like, oh, oh yeah. if I train this idiot, he's just going to go and kill a bunch of children, isn't he? <laughs> like, Basically, yeah. It's like, I see the same murderous glint in your mm. eye. Uh, the Han and Leia stuff I really like. I like their, their general dynamic, yeah. Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford have a lot of chemistry. Of course, uh, you know, the legend of that is that a lot of that stuff is actors changing their lines and figuring things out as they go along, like the I love you, I know, yeah. that's that's an Ar- a Harrison Ford improv. It's a legendary line, too. It's it's so cool. I like the fight against Vader on in Cloud City. It's one of the first times you get a real lightsaber duel. Yeah. Because, you know, Obi-Wan versus Vader... That's that kind of like two old men hitting sticks at yeah, each other. Yeah, that, that's two old men hitting each other with canes in the like in, in the, the old parking lot of a Best Buy. <laughs> the parking yeah. lot. No, no, in the parking lot outside <laughs> of the Salvation Army. It's like if you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you can possibly comprehend. I'll call my grand. I'm gonna sue your ass. I'll be- I'm gonna call my grandson. <laughs> He's a lawyer. I'm gonna call my grandson. He's a lawyer in New York. He's gonna sue your ass. I can't do a New York accent. The other I old, wish I could. Then the then the other old man's like, "You gonna try it? Try it. My son's a senator. My se- my son's a, my son's a doctor." What, what that? Uh, what, the, what are you even trying to do here, John? That's that's a. It's barely different from how you normally talk, and and b. In the ways that it is, it it. I'm not sure what it's supposed to be. It's more like a squawk than an accent. <laughs> I know. I I want to be doing a New York accent, but I can't do a New York accent. Well, anyway, at least you try. That's something to work on. <laughs> yeah, that's at least I try, on. Lawson. Hey, I know my own limitations, <laughs> and I I don't stretch against them. So you know. Yeah, but how are you ever yeah. grow? Anyway, so. In Cloud City, we also meet Lando Calrissian. Billy D. Williams is is Billy D. Williams. He's just a burst of charisma. Like Han calls him, "You old charmer." I'm just like, "Hell yeah, he is." I mean, this is the interesting thing that I would like to know what the original intent was before Leia was retconned to be Luke's sister, because they're clearly setting up love triangles, pretty obviously. Yeah, with Luke, Leia, and Han especially, but you get like bits and pieces of uh, of Lando, you know, trying to get a foot in the door as well. Like, I love in Rise, Rise of Skywalker when he's like, and send Leia my love, and Rey is like, you should give give her your love yourself. And every time I see that, I just think of him saying like, I keep trying, but she won't let me. <laughs> she, she won't return my calls. Like, he, like, Lando comes out flirty straight off the mm. bat. Yeah. And Billy D. Williams just has that easy charm. 
that you can tell that if Han weren't around, he's got the game to make mm. it work. Yeah, I, I, I like the idea of making there be a love trial angle between Lando, Leia, and yeah. Luke. Which and is the Luke, difference. Luke is the one who wants to get with Lando. Yeah. Which is the difference between Billy D. Williams and Donald Glover, is that Billy D. Williams, it feels effortless. With Donald Glover, it feels like his character in Community, Troy, cosplaying as Lando Calrissian. I do see that. I do see that. But, like, Donald Glover has that... He has charm himself. Yeah, but it's not the right charm for the character. Yeah. It's not, like, suave mm. charm. Well, he's still young at that point. Yeah, I know. He'll like, grow into that. I, I like that Ben Rises I like that Ben Rises Skywalker because he's still got it. Like that line read was perfect. Uh but there's the betrayal in Cloud City. And how Boba Fett's just around. Yeah. Okay, Boba Fett. We have to talk about him. He appears he in the background in the first two and gets shit mixed in the third. Yeah. Pretty quickly. And by accident. That was pretty weak. He's built up to be this, like, major threat. Like, Vader even says to him, no disintegrations. As if that's been a problem before. But even still, Boba Fett was popular enough, and he was very popular mainly because of his design and what we knew of the char- what people knew of the character, to merit his father's inclusion in the prequel trilogy, his origin in the prequel trilogy, and continued fandom appeal. There's something that I his presence in the Mandalorian. Yeah, you knew yes. about that, though. You that was what that. I was about to say. I was about to say there's something I'm dancing around, and I'm wondering if you are too. Like, oh yeah, we were dancing yeah. around it. I mean, but I like... think we all knew deep down in our bones that the Sarlacc didn't kill him. Well, in the in the Legends continuity, like they had already retconned that that he got yeah. out of there. Apparently, yeah. George Lucas considered in the in the re-release adding in a shot of him crawling out of the Sarlacc's mouth as <laughs> Luke and friends flew away. But as it stand, as it stood in when Return came out, he yeah. died, and it just shows you how evocative the design was of the the helmet and the whole yeah. getup that he was able to exist for so little a time but still becomes so significant in the grand scheme of things. Like, think about it. When he appeared in A New Hope, right, there was no conception that, one, he was a clone, or two, that his father, who he was cloned off of, would be the source of the Stormtroopers. Obviously, Stormtroopers, by that point in time of the Empire, were normal people, um, but still, it's remarkable that sort of significance the character got. It's, it's interesting, like, I really enjoy the first part of Return of the Jedi with all of the Jabba's palace stuff. I mean, it and it, it, it creates the same feeling that the Mos Eisley Cantina does, just in terms of the, 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 the crew of people there. Like, the, and, and obviously there you get, like, the digital characters, like the, the, the rock band number. Um, Jedi Rock. Yep. Jedi Rock. Which is, is okay, pretty groovy, so, but the... Okay, it's it's funky in the same way that Bat Dance was funky. No, Bat it Dance isn't. Is a no, classic. it isn't. It's, it's a lot less campy uh, than for, Bat Dance. Okay, I, I agree with that, but for me, it's inclusion. That's one of the ones that feels off. See, 
with the CG. Yes, it's the sure, CG characters. It's, I think it's the CG characters that make it feel off, not the thing itself. I, I however, do love the dude screaming. <laughs> I love that image. That's that's a gif on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, it's the weird, uh, the female lead singer of the Max Rebo Size band. Noodles. The, yeah, Size Noodles. The design just creeps me out in a... I don't know, it's just... She does kind of look like a puffer fish with arms and legs. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. That's um, but, yeah, the, the CG on them, I mean, that's, as we said before, that when they insert new CG into these older scenes, especially 1997 CG, it, it, it's unfortunate. But, I mean, the, the, the matte paintings, we didn't really talk about this, but the matte paintings... They're gorgeous. They're just gorgeous all throughout. Although I will hasten oh, to add... Yeah. Um, that, like, think about the shot of Luke falling in Empire Strikes Back when he goes over the edge and how terrible that looks now, the compositing of that. Let's not pretend yeah. that any of this stuff ever looked real. I know that people like to say, oh, I can't believe CGI stuff because it's always, it looks so fake. Let's not pretend that compositing and CG and rubber prosthetics uh, let's not pretend that they they look realistic in in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, for example, like the la- the um the speeder bikes on Endor, mm. that looks pretty yeah. rough now. Even like like Greedo, for for as much as I love the designs and still appreciate the prosthetics, that's clearly a guy in a mask. It just yeah. clearly is. Let's not pretend that it looks any yeah. more realistic than a digitally created character like Jar Jar Binks. It just looks fake in a different way. Jabba looks good, though. He does. That one's very, very well realised. But he still has that rubbery sheen. Yeah, the mouth, specifically. But I mean, yeah. And I mean, like, I this is not a criticism of the original trilogy. It's, it, it is a product of its time, just as CGI effects are a product of their time now. But I, I just, I always kind of raise an eyebrow when people talk about how much better practical effects are than CGI than CGI effects? In some instances, sure. In terms of like explosions and and crashes and and things like that that you could you and that cool. you can actually do in real life relatively safely, sure. There's an argument to be made there. But when you're talking about you know gore effects in horror movies, like like the people talking about oh the thing the thing looks so much more. Um, you know, scary than the 2011 remake. I'm just like, no, no. When that guy's um, when that guy's stomach opens up and bites off that other guy's arms, it looks like exactly what it is. It looks like gelatin being torn apart. It, it, this is not yeah. to say that it looks any more lifelike when you do that stuff with CG. It all looks fake. Let's not pretend yeah, that it just, doesn't. It's just a different type yes. of thing. I mean, I, and I, you know what I think it is? I think it's, I think it's nostalgia. I think it just is that people were so used to that stuff growing up that that's the stuff that they have a nostalgia for. Whereas us, we've always seen CG in movies, and so it's and and we've always also watched older movies. So we've always also watched you know older stuff with prosthetics and matte paintings and compositing so for us none of it looks particularly different from each other in terms of reality one of the bits i particularly like is when luke gets his new hand and it has the bit opened up Mm. and you see like the metal sort of like gears and stuff 
like the pistons that's particularly well realized i really like how they did that mm. um and it's it's the little details that are the most successful yeah but i love the models for the ships and stuff and for the atsts and all the speeders that's remarkable stuff Let- uh, and you could tell they did a bit of stop motion with the atsd falling over yeah and that's very successful as well. Let's talk about Return of the Jedi, the the the, the proper thrust of the story there with the second Death Star. It's yes. repetitive, it's not creative, but let's get let's be honest here. It makes a lot of sense in universe. I mean, yeah. if you built yeah, that first just try again. Yeah, if you built that first Death Star, it was pretty successful. <laughs> Albeit with that fatal flaw. Well, I don't see why they would not bothered to try again yeah they probably had someone look back over the blueprints and find the problem and fix it, hmm. it look, well except like, this it destroys what it destroys planets yes. why not destroy again the the problem here is that the core of this death star is totally exposed <laughs> like it's an even bigger blind spot than than the original one had by a factor of like a thousand um admittedly it's not finished but that also suggests to me that you might want to wait till it is before you put your big grand plan into motion, but okay. True. Yeah, I agree. I like how Ian McDermott is, like, straight up the emperor yeah. in this. And he's, like, in his late 30s when they made this. Yeah. Like, how, like, yeah. all of that is just makeup. It's remarkable. Mm. And you hear some of his, like, signature cackles. Yeah. It's good shit. I do That's think that... that the Vader Luke stuff is a little bit forced. I think it's a quick turn that Vader makes from yeah, definitely from bad to good again. Like when you really think about it, it's only like an hour or two that he spends with Luke. Like Luke gets brought to him on the planet, and then they go to the throne room, and the rest yeah, of the movie plays Anakin's out there. Yeah, but Anakin's a sappy bitch. Yeah, Anakin. I do is like the, kind the uh... person. All that Luke needs to do when he's being electrocuted is say, Daddy, help me, and all of a sudden, it, none of it matters anymore. Like, it didn't work when Padme said it, didn't work when Obi-Wan said it. He's been evil oh, for, yeah. for you, 20 you years. You remember that time when Obi-Wan said, Daddy, please? <laughs> but... <laughs> Daddy, please, don't try it. Daddy, I have the high ground. Daddy, I have the high ground. But this this turn happens a little quickly for my liking. I actually do like the the inclusion of the the no no at the end of Return of the Jedi. I actually don't mind that. I think James L. Jones sells it. Yeah, yeah. I I like the conversation they have on Endor when they're discussing Luke's new lightsaber. It's like such a a a dad moment in a way. He like looks at it and going, "Did good, kid. Did real good." But it's like a dad who's been absent for a very long time, looking at his kid's school project and just going, you did good. And the kid's just going, I know it's good. <laughs> the Emperor stuff is really... I, I like the Emperor as a villain. I like him a lot as a too. villain. I, I especially like Ian McDermott. His performance as him. I think he serves such an interesting... He serves an interesting thematic function in all of the movies, but... Obviously, this is his introduction, where he he is sort of the 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 devil on the characters' shoulders, telling them, you know, just do it, do it. But, yeah, uh, like like it's 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 that part of it. Like that's the other thing that the emperor could be a spokesperson for is Nike. Do it, just do, do it. it. <laughs> but uh, 
that he serves as 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 a whole lot of things really that he he is the the sort of cartoon devil on the shoulder whereas obi-wan and yoda are the cartoon angel he's the tempter he is the the the, the snake in the garden he's you know the devil in the desert he fu- he fulfills those functions in such an interesting way yeah and i love the line yeah. where he says I'm afraid the deflector shield will be quite operational when your friends arrive. I I just love that. That is so psychotic. And it's so mean for no good reason at all. Like, McDermott nailed it. Yeah. The, The character, the sort of... Like, the petty cruelty of it, too, is something that McDermott sells very well whenever he appears as Palpatine. Let's talk about the Ewoks. I like the Ewoks. I like them. Warwick Davis put on such a fantastic performance at such a young age. Mm. He's just living that teddy bears go to battle. I think my favourite story of sort of behind the scenes in terms of the Ewoks was Carrie Fisher was always really sweet with Warwick Davis. And would give him, like, cookies and chocolate milk when they weren't filming. Hmm. And I think that's just the most adorable thing. Well, it was it was originally it was originally supposed to be Kenny Baker that played that character. But yeah. he got sick the day that they were supposed to start filming. So Warwick Davis was tapped in. Yeah, and Warwick Davis said something along the lines of, she was everything that an 11-year-old Ewok could want. Just imagine if, if, if Kenny... Baker hadn't gotten sick that day, we might never have gotten the Leprechaun franchise. I think more significantly, <laughs> we wouldn't have gotten Warwick Davis. Yeah, but by extension, we wouldn't have gotten the Leprechaun franchise. Sure. Sure. Okay. I'm just saying, you it would have been a real loss. Dredge that back up. All right, if you say so, Lawson. I, anyway. I think that the sister reveal with Leia is forced. Yeah. It's sudden, yeah. it's forced. When you actually look at its place in the movie, there's no point to it whatsoever. Like, you could just strip the sister thing out of the movie entirely and there would be no material impact on yeah. the plot at all. Uh, that actually, that goes for the whole trilogy. I mean, it as, as we mentioned earlier, that this, this appears to have been a retcon that was done after George Lucas decided that he was not going to pursue the sequel trilogy at any point in the near future. So, in, in that respect, it's, it, it bears the, the stitching of that like you can see that it's not the most organic of things and frankly it was a little bit for me watching it this time it felt like kind of goofy especially after the last reveal of of close relatives (laughs) like we're coming off the i am your father thing so Mm. so recently that throw another surprise relative at luke it seemed a little bit like yeah it's like and yoda's your grandfather (laughs) Like that stuff. Then Luke just looks mm. down at his hand. I'm not green though. Mm. And the- Chewbacca is your 18th cousin, twice removed. Then Chewbacca's just like, whoa! I I do think it's kind of funny the justifications they try to give, and specifically when Leia says, "I I know. I think I've always known." Really. You've always known. Yeah, that's why she kept trying to make out with her brother. There's a fa- funny thing on the special features, or the description of the special features on Disney+, Plus, where it it has a scene from Empire, 
you know the scene where Leia and Luke are talking after he's gotten yeah. back and is getting healed up after the Wampa attack where, or whatever? Yeah, where originally they really they come really close to kissing mm. before Han interrupts them. Yeah, yeah, and and mm. the description thing says, luckily, R2-D2 <laughs> gets in the way. And it's like, yeah, Disney Plus kind of... Uh, th- yeah, they understand that it's a little bit odd. Uh, I like how savage the Ewoks can be yes. in battle. Like, actually quite brutal. It reminds me, there's this game mode in Star Wars Battlefront 2, the most recent one, where it's a skirmish on Endor. One team is Stormtroopers, and the other team is Ewoks. No shit. It is pitch black darkness. The Stormtroopers have, like, torches on the blasters, and it is basically... A scene out of Predator. That's the best thing ever. Because the Ewoks have traps all set up, their spears and everything. It is terrifying. I... Actually terrifying. It's tense and So they turn brutal. those little teddy bears into a scary guerrilla warfare kind of thing. Yeah. There's like the, um, uh, the, like the wood traps, like the sledgehammer Jesus. things. There's bits with, like, spikes. But big, like, uh, logs that have spikes bored into them, and it swings down and takes you away. Wow. Also, we, we can't forget that the Ewoks were going to eat Han and Luke. Yeah. They were going to yep. eat him. Like, no bullshit, cook him and eat him. Mm-hmm. Well, you got to do what you got to do, don't you? Yeah, but... They're under occupation from a, from a hostile... How, how many how many stormtroopers have they probably eaten? Well, John, let's be fair. Today's the day the teddy bears have their picnic of you. Yeah, that's true. They did beat up and probably kill a lot of dudes. How many? Aren't they playing the drums on their ate? helmets at the end? Yes, yes. The heads are probably still inside. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think they ate some stormtroopers? Absolutely. Oh yeah, sure. If they ate, if they ate, um, if they were gonna eat Han and Luke, why wouldn't they? Exactly. I mean, it's like extra crunch too with the armor, like lobster. Snap it open and drink. Crack it. And drink uh, are you the saying they wouldn't inside. take them out of the armor before they cook them? Of course not. Like it's you like, just shove some like, herbs and some butter just, up in there. They slow cook. They slow cook them slow cook. so that the meat falls off the bone. Do you honestly think that the Ewoks didn't go to the Darth Vader's pyre afterwards? Crack it open. <laughs> And suck out his his body juices. Like, because I'm assuming that the suit was heat resistant. Anakin's not bright, but he knows that fire is bad, and to avoid it, <laughs> definitely this now. Time, definitely now. Uh, so I imagine that the meat's still looking pretty good in there. I don't know. It's pretty rank. It's been in a leather outfit for I don't know twenty years. Well, they did want to also eat that scruffy looking nerf herder. So, yeah, but he'd be better to let's eat. Let's not be judgy. He'd be better to eat because he hasn't been freaking oven roasted on Mustafar and covered with soot. When, Lawson, when you said the lobster thing, I just imagined one of the Ewoks grabbing a knife, <laughs> putting it <laughs> just going at crunch. the top of the storm tro- Stormtrooper's chest, cracking it down, then like splitting it open. <laughs> <laughs> That's brutal. I'm just imagining an Ewok sucking the marrow out of someone's bones. And that's a horrific, uh, fantastic image. But like, I do love how the, the, how we get to see an Ewok morning. 
Mm. Like, one of the Ewoks dies in an explosion, Battle. and we see another Ewok just go up, push it, and be like, Ted? Hey, Ted, are you okay? Today's the day the teddy bears do their mourning. I mean, it's a sudden... This whole ending here is a sudden end to a complicated situation. I mean, yeah. Yeah. they blow up the Death Star, the Emperor and Darth Vader are dead, but, like, that's... We're supposed to think that there is no line of succession here? I, I mean, mean clearly, obviously there is. Clearly, clearly there... Well, that all goes, uh... The... I mean, think about it. In in the ending, we see parties happening on Coruscant. Yeah. In the booth. Coruscant is, like, the seat of power yeah. for the Empire. But, but in the, the books that they've done now, or the comics or something, there's supposed to be some contingency plan that the Emperor had that all of the Empire sort of left and went to regroup and that's what the first order was born out of because that was the first or that was the first order yeah. that palpatine created when he was establishing the empire oh yeah it was and, that and yes the contingency just let me finish john the contingency it was that it was yeah it's like in the event that we lose the death star or i lose my life my first order is you go into hiding re-establish yourselves then come back to ten times as strong. <laughs> it, it, it's that piece of it's that narration from Austin Powers to a time when like free love didn't reign love, and no, corporate no greed yeah. struck again. But like, like that's that kind the, of the, it ends like that ended at the Battle of Jakku. Yeah, that that's yeah. the remnants of all of the starships that Ray is living in at the start of Force Awakens. That. That that is the site of the last great war when the Empire regrouped and came back, but were once again unsuccessful. Yeah, and it, because we've got the sequel trilogy, and because we've got Rise of Skywalker, because we know all of the Emperor's plans, it's sort of a ferric victory. It mm. doesn't. It it's like yes, you get peace, you get quiet, but the Emperor well, was planning for this. He's got plans and plans. Peace. Peace is momentary. Peace is not a state of being, it is an activity. You need to constantly maintain peace. You need to constantly work towards equality and equity. And all of this talk of Luke, contingencies is making me really sure. nervous, Lawson. No, but the Empire is actually a genius. Yeah. So, uh, and the failing, we'll get into this. We'll talk about that sort of stuff. The establishment of the First Order and where our heroes went wrong mm-hmm. uh, when we discuss the sequel trilogy next week. I think they. I think it went wrong when I saw Leia bite into that guy's roasted arm. What? I'm assuming that they took part in eating the stormtroopers as well. What other food was there? The, the stuff they, brought, they with them? brought with them? Yeah, but when in Rome, dined with the locals. <laughs> We're removing that. Oh, come on. Anyway. Yes, I'm um, assuming that they ate human flesh. Alright. Okay, here's a here's a question about stormtroopers. Do you think that it's just humans? Or that it's, like, other species of aliens as well? Just well, you the... only ever see humans working for the Emperor. You know what we should start to do with you, John? What? Remember when Bill Shorten was opposition leader and Sean McAuliffe on his show would always have that zinger... We should start doing that every time you say something ridiculous that draws the podcast to a total halt. <laughs> just like the screech of tires. Mm. Just like 
bringing it to a standstill. Now, with with the Empire, you only ever see humans in like positions of power, like admirals, all of that. This is this is oh. far after the character of like Thrawn or something. So seems like they're human supremacists as well. There's um there is no position more dangerous in the Galactic Empire than that of Admiral. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> God, that that like, Piet stuff is just fantastic. Like throughout the entire original trilogy, Vader goes through. <laughs> He does. A lot of them. So much so that in Re- Return of the Jedi, when they're getting let past, there's one guy just like, please don't say it, please don't say it, please don't say it. Good luck, Admiral. Shit. <laughs> it's like, one of those things that's where... That's the worst job. If, if you are just your regular garden variety stormtrooper and you keep your head down and you don't rock the boat, you're gonna be fine. But if you're an Admiral... You will make a mistake, and he will kill. And Vader you. will kill yeah. you. I'm in. I'm fascinated by the politics of the Empire. Honestly, mm. I. Well, I, uh, I, I, I want. I want to see a whole show just about like it's the West Wing, but it's, yeah. but it's on Coruscant. Well, watching watching it this time was the first time I really caught that the Senate still existed up through yeah. to the middle of A uh, New Hope. Yeah, yeah, because they said. In the middle of New Hope, now we have the power to dissolve the Senate. And I would just like more exploration of how everything worked under the Empire. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, because things were bad under the Empire for people. They were tyrants. But I want to see... We get told what they did that was bad. I want to see what the living conditions were like. And we see a little bit of that in Rogue One. And in Solo. And in Solo, but I'd like to see more of it, you know? Uh, they explore a little bit of, like, the remnants of the Empire in The Mandalorian. Yeah. Like, you got Werner Herzog as an old admiral, or an old general, and that's fantastic. It just, when he appeared in The Mandalorian, it got me thinking of how he would describe Ewoks. Look at them, tiny bears, primitive society, throwing a stone and knocking over... A gigantic empire. What a little victory for just such little bears. All right, we seem to be coming to the end here, so why don't we go around and say who our MVP is for this trilogy? Oh, can I ask just just a quick thing first? What's your favourite track, both of you? What's your favourite music track in the original? For me, it's the one, um, I think it's the Battle of Endor. It's, It's... it's the the slice of music that plays when Luke shouts "Never" and starts like smacking Vader around. Yes, I agree. Uh, the dark, really dark choir stuff there. It sounds like there's Mine... a church organ as well, mm. which is pretty cool. Mine is "Mad About Me" by Fragrant Dan and the Modal yep. Nodes, the Cantina song. Yeah, it's it's fun, it's jovial, and I have a really emotion. I have an emotional connection to it because. Uh, we used to play the Lego Star Wars and the DS. Yeah. When we were little. And that's what would... Because the main hub area was... The cantina. The cantina. And that would be playing the whole time. So it just made me feel good. Yeah. So I just got a huge connection to it. And you're telling me it's and not I Jedi Rocks? Who are you talking it to? It makes... Jedi... I was talking to Harley. 
Shadow Rocks bothers me. Okay. <laughs> Not the scream bit, but the chuba chuba cha stuff. I want to hear a version of that song done by you, Harley. I think that would be fantastic. No, no. I've already got to learn each lyric to the Minions, I swear. No, you don't. Why? It's it's a whole thing I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. Um, so before we leave off, why don't we all go around and say what who our MVP is for this trilogy and what our favourite scene or sequence in the trilogy is. I will start us off and say that my MVP is George Lucas. Because he created this whole world entirely out of nothing. And that is incredibly impressive. He has his flaws as a writer and as a director. But this trilogy, Star Wars as a whole, would not exist without him. It is entirely from his mind, this, these concepts. And the effect that that has had on films in general... The effect that that has had on my taste in films, like I am obsessed with Star Wars, the books, like the games, it is my favourite franchise. I can't give it to anyone else other than George Lucas for yeah. the original outings in, in, in this story. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, it is the the duel on in the throne room in Return of the Jedi, the fight between Luke and Vader up to and including the the death of the Emperor. I really love that stuff. I think that it's really well handled. As I said just before, the, the music is fantastic. The lighting of it is great. And it, it's just a really dramatic, theatrical end to, to the series. Even if I do think that the Vader turn is a little too quick of a thing. What about you, John? Well, for me... Because you already said George Lucas, and I think that goes without saying, I'm going to give it to Alec Guinness. Because he's playing the character of Obi-Wan with such mystery, with such intrigue, and so open, that you can just take whatever you want from that. Those looks he gives R2-D2, like, he carries the history of the franchise on his back when he didn't even know what the history was. And retroactively, you see all of the history just on his face when he's talking about it, when he talks about how Anakin was a friend, how he fought in the Clone Wars, how he, yeah, you know, all of that stuff, all of, Alec Guinness just does a fantastic job of that. And yeah, I I have to give it to either Alec Guinness or Frank Oz. Favorite scene? Favorite scene. I have to go for the throne room as well, because it's just the pinnacle of what Star Wars is, this it's melodrama, it's Shakespearean qualities, you know, Ian McDermott just goes to the hilt every time and it's just brilliant. The music, James L. Jones' voice acting, you got Mark Hamill really bringing out something special with his dalliance with the dark side of the Force. And yeah, I just think it's a fantastic scene. My MVP is James Earl. He is Darth Vader. He, every line is quotable. He is this threatening force of darkness. And James Earl Jones just has that fabulous voice. And if, if Vader had a different voice, then I'm sorry, the character wouldn't land. It, it just wouldn't. It, it seems silly. But James Earl Jones gives the character that gravitas that is needed to make the character work. My favorite scene is a single moment. 
it is when Luke walks out of the house and looks towards the twin suns going down in A New Hope. As the music swells up, that, my friends, is Star Wars. Yeah. In its purest form, it's the that the Force theme, standing on an alien planet and looking beyond. And and that moment relates to my favorite moment from the sequel trilogy, but we'll get yeah. to that. So, not going to bother with the IMDb? Oh, I found an interesting one. For Return of the Jedi. In A New Hope, a cat. As for the IMDb parents' guide, we have a few installments here. In A New Hope, a character says that a girl is beautiful. <laughs> That's really what? stretching, though. Mm-hmm. That's really stretching. Come on. You can you can describe a, a packet of chips as beautiful. You can describe What's a sunset as what beautiful. Is Sex and nudity. What? Oh, come on. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> what kind of pearl clutching Puritan wrote that? Mm. Uh, well, this is actually kind of interesting. They point out the fact that, of course, in the scene in Mosasta Cantina, that's the only time in the movie, in the series, really, where a lightsaber produces blood and doesn't cauterize the wound. Yeah. Which is interesting. They clearly hadn't figured out that that's the direction they were going to go with it yet. Yeah, because the only other time someone gets smacked with a lightsaber, he turns into nothing. Han Solo says, what the hell are you doing once? Also one use of shut up, and one use of stupid. Damn is used twice, as well as hell. Okay, so for, what about Empire? Anything? Hang on, I'm not, you're going to have to give me some time here to just see if... Now then, on to Empire Strikes Back... Luke Skywalker is seen in a healing tank wearing only a small pouch with a strap covering his groin. <laughs> yeah. So, so scandalous. Cock Yeah, but it's not in a that's, sexual... That's, what they, that's the industry slang for what actors have yeah, to wear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember hearing behind-the-scenes stuff about Game of Thrones and Jason Momoa with, like, he had a pink one or mm. something. Leia passionately kisses Luke. They are siblings, but they do not know that yet. <laughs> oh, IMDb Parents Guide, you have such a way with words. He Under violence and gore, he will join us or die, Master, a character vows. Okay, sure. It's a threat, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> there are also characters who point guns at each other. Like, that's literally of the same amount of threat. In profanity... Leia insults Han Solo by calling him a nerf herder. Do we know what a nerf herder is? That's. I would that's assume a that a nerf is an animal that is herded, much like sheep are. Hey Google. Yeah. What is a nerf herder? Hey Google, stop. I'm assuming that didn't it was pick something up. That riveting. didn't pick up on no. the microphone at all. No. I'm assuming the answer was riveting. No, it was just nerf herder is the name of a band in California. <laughs> Nerf herders were were individuals who herded members of the nerf species. Do we know what a nerf looks like? Nerfs were a species of furry, non-sentient animals raised for their milk, meat, and hide. They can be found on a variety of planets across the galaxy, from Alderaan to Lothal. Despite their usefulness, nerfs were often regarded as disgusting because of their strong body odour. When frightened, nerfs tended to shed and expel filthy mucus through the nose and mouth. Jesus. <laughs> so it's dirty work. I feel like there's 
there's sort of a cutoff point where you get to how gross an animal is. Like, like there's there's a Venn diagram of usefulness <laughs> and disgust, and that is purely in the middle. Imagine it, if like Nerf be alive. Nerf must taste Nerf must taste fantastic for it to be worth <laughs> it. It must be like the tenderest cut. It's like Wagyu Nerf. Get some Nerf's Nerf loin. Oh bullshit! It's just coming up with Nerf guns. Shit like oh, so it's it's kind of like a sort of like a buffalo sorta. Yeah. Yeah. A mucusy buffalo. Yeah. That's it in one of the games. Huh. All right. All right. Frightening and intense scenes. Some scenes can be intense or frightening for smaller children. Exclamation point. Yes. Uh oh. Uh, Minox. You're gonna have to. Can sl- be scary. Lawson. They're really gonna have to chill out on the use of the exclamation mark. Mm. Minox. Because that was kind of in- that. W- the exclamation mark was kind of intense and frightening. Oh, uh, the Minox, those things that were living inside of the thing that was living inside of yeah. the asteroid? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Return of the Jedi. While a slave girl is suggestively dancing and struggling with a chain, her nipple is briefly visible. It is very difficult to make out, so it's nothing to worry about. If it's difficult to make out, guys, <laughs> does it really... Does it really inspire the thought in your head? Ooh, oh, this is a... No. This... I love this one. Leia's slave outfit can fly over kids' heads, but kids can be tempted to look beyond that. What's that <laughs> wording, though? Come on! IMDB Parents Guide, I'm getting conflicted ideas from you. First, it's nothing to worry about, and then it's going to get my mind dirty. This is a real creep show kind of thing here. Beyond that. When the Max Rebo band plays in Jabba's Palace, an alien girl seductively dances in a see-through outfit. Nothing is visible, though, but in the special edition, when she falls into the rancor pit, the outline of her nipples is visible in a brief shot of her. I'm pretty sure that's just the same item from above worded differently, but they're yeah. so concerned about it, they do it twice. Leia wears a metal bikini as Jabba's slave, which reveals lots of her lots of her lots breast of... and buttock cleavage. The granular detail they go on this stuff really kind of yeah, like here, me out. The violence and gore it troubles me. Luke throws a skull at a gate switch, then a huge creature is impaled with the gate spikes. Did they put the throws a skull thing because that Im- the presence of a skull outside of its flesh encasement? is a reference to the fact that death exists in Star Wars. Is that the no, only I'm reason a, why I'm that's assu- there? I'm assuming it was the spike through the head that was the operative point of the no, comment. No, but why bother saying throws a skull? Well, that's because that's what he does. And it's a skull. It's a human skull. It's multi If they had a threat that Darth Vader said he will join us or die, you really think they won't mention the fact that there's a skull here? That, that is implied to have been it, consumed uh, by a giant monster? I mean, but, but it's like can- a... You can generally infer by the narrative that death exists. It's it's like that story that Carl Jung says about Sigmund Freud. <laughs> when Carl Jung told Sigmund Freud that he had a dream about a skeleton, Sigmund Freud screamed, You're trying to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> he was a weird fella, Lawson. Because he thought like his friends dreaming skulls m- meant that they wished death on people. Two people are shot or grazed in the arm. And hand in great detail. Yeah. There's nothing else here. I just skimmed through it. So, with that... Beaten and battered by Ewoks. I like that image. With that all over and done with, let's just reiterate once more that next week we will be talking about the Star Wars sequel trilogy comprised of 
Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens, Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, and Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Easily in the running for the stupidest title of the Star Wars franchise. So, if you would like to follow along at home, you can watch all of those movies on Disney Plus. Obviously, you can also rent them or purchase them on the Apple, Amazon, Google Play, Microsoft. YouTube, and Fetch stores. With the exception of A New Hope, you cannot rent A New Hope on the Microsoft Store. You can only purchase it. No Q What the hell? The, according to, according to JustWatch.com, the price of buying a new, uh, Rise of Skywalker, I'm sorry. Rise of Skywalker, not, not A New Hope, which is, I think, what I said. Um, according to JustWatch.com, the price of Rise of Skywalker on... The Microsoft Store is a hundred and nine dollars. What? That can't be accurate. What? No, that, that can't that be right. Cannot be. That doesn't Hang make on, sense. I'm trying to go to the website here, but the internet's being slow. Ah, uh, it is only included in the nine movie collection. Oh, uh, right. Hey, no hey, Q ju- Store this time. No just Q-Store. watch. Hey, just watch. I think you need to tweak your algorithm just a little bit. <laughs> uh, so yeah, if you want to talk to us, you can reach us through our Twitter. Uh, that's the best place to give episode-specific feedback, and also, you know, just chat about stuff. Harley's getting lonely. You know, just just a casual conversation would be nice. <laughs> but you can also find us at our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy County. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. Each of those links is in the description where it appears on your podcast app of choice. Comment, like, rate, subscribe. Share around to friends. Share around to friends. Commenting it really helps with the algorithm because it shows audience engagement. Yes. And just remember, when you comment, you're commenting on the show itself. Like I said before, you can give specific feedback on the Twitter. We are still under the thumb, as we all must be at some point, under the algorithm. The terrible algorithm that discu- that controls our lives. That that exudes us and penetrates us. What? The line from New Hope when he's talking about the Force. It's all around us. It penetrates us. It's the force. All right. Well, that might have that might have worked if you'd actually said the line instead of exudes. Yeah, I couldn't remember the whole line. We'll just cut that. <laughs> Zinger. Anyway, <laughs> shut up. I'm so doing that from now on. <laughs> don't cut it. Don't cut it. <laughs> don't, don't make don't make it a zinger. Make it a like a tire screech. I'm not. I'll just say zinger every time he does it. <laughs> Alright. Anyway, so I've been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. I have been Jean-Louis. Holly, I am your brother. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and now to play us out, the Max Rebo Band. Go need that!